Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon and welcome to episode 19 of Why Food. I'm your host, Patrick McAndrew, and each week I'm joined by a new guest who has made the transition from a previous career into the food industry. The show's here to share inspiring stories of people who have restarted their careers and followed their passions into the world of food and wine, or in this case, food and nature. Uh, this week, Ben Flanner joins me on the show. Ben's one of the co-founders of Brooklyn Grange, the world's largest rooftop soil farms, which is split between two locations in the Navy Yard in Brooklyn and Long Island City in Queens. Thanks for joining me here today, Ben. Pleasure to be here. We were just talking about before we came on air how this place brings back some memories because Roberta's had some sort of uh, an involvement in in the early stages of Brooklyn Grange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because just where we're sitting, we're sitting here in a shipping container and there's a little bit of a farm on top of us here. Right. Now, what you've done is kind of expanded way beyond that and put it on top of uh, two big buildings in Brooklyn and in Queens. Yep. Actually, something I didn't mention before we came on air is... I was looking at my Instagram because I remembered I moved to New York two years ago and uh, a week after I moved here, I had heard of Brooklyn Grange in Long Island City and it was one of the first places that I kind of went to check out in terms of food and it was the first Instagram that I had put up after moving to New York (laughs) City. Amazing. Very funny. And here we are. First time I see Instagram. Yeah. That's great. Here we are two years later talking about it. Um. So we're going to get in later into the conversation and talking about Brooklyn Grange and all that you've achieved and all that it's achieved for agriculture and cultivation in New York City. But I just want to scale it back and go back to your youth and where it all began, because um, you're from Wisconsin. That's where you're from originally. Indeed. Yeah. So growing up in Wisconsin... I've never been to Wisconsin. Is it, it is, is it a very rural landscape? Is it a, is it a place that is, that is littered with ag- agriculture? It is. A massive percentage of the area of the state is, is agriculture. A lot of industrial agriculture, also organic and small scale. Um, I specifically grew up in a suburb of Milwaukee. So where I grew up, it was more like neighborhoods developing and farms right around us disappearing. Right. Okay, so I was coming to that time where the suburbs were starting to to morph into, mm-hmm. or the farms were starting to morph into suburbs. And was it something that you were engaged in, that you were involved in with being out on the land? Uh, as a child, no. Um, we, we had a, a, a typical suburban Midwest yard, and, and I was very engaged in the, the smaller scale growing and gardening, mowing the lawn, a little bit of landscaping and whatnot. But I was not involved or exposed to any agriculture. And then growing up, was it? Well, so say so because I find this very interesting, and it's it's the joy that I have of of having this show of meeting people where, in their youth, the stuff that they go on to do later and do exceptionally well is so far removed from, I suppose, what's an interest of theirs when they're younger. What was when you were when you were growing up and thinking, what am I going to be when I'm older? This is what I want to aspire to be. What was what was running along in those lines? <laughs> it's really hard to remember. I don't think I was super decisive at that at that point. But um, I was a tinkerer, and I always was. Uh, I had a lot of energy, and I was always working on different projects, be that um, 
building things out of PVC or uh, even playing chess or outside helping helping to cook, pickling, things like that. So looking back on it, those characteristics are all very much in line with, with agriculture. A very active mind. Because of the imagine. nature of the job, yeah. Yeah, because it is at this stage, I suppose, the vast majority of it by putting a farm on a roof is problem solving most of the time. Right, and, and constant uh, systems optimization and, and tinkering and improvements. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if we skip forward, later in life, then you went on to do industrial engineering in college. Mm-hmm. So what brought you in line to, to decide to study that? Um, I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison and um, had a bit of an affinity for math and also a, not, not a super clear plan for what, what my next steps were. And industrial engineering was interesting to me because um, it was involved in, in that type of thing, manufacturing, making, creating. Um, and it seemed like it was also the type of career that was going to open up doors and that, that you could sort of go in a couple different directions after, after one graduated. So that appealed to me also because I didn't have such a finite plan for exactly. It wasn't like I wanted to be a marine biologist. Right. I was a kid with fish in my room since I was 13 years old <laughs> or something like that. You know. So, and, so. and did you plan on staying in the Midwest? Did you plan on staying uh, uh, in Wisconsin? Uh, I decided... Uh, probably near the second half of, of university that I wanted to move to a large city and I became really interested in New York and then um, found a job there uh, pretty soon after I graduated and, and uh, drove out and um, I've lived here for about 13 years. What was the job that you got when you moved out here? It was at a consulting firm um, and that was one of the sort of things that appealed to me because it seemed like a, a pretty uh, uh, really interesting sort of a challenge type of a job um, where uh, there's different types of consulting. It's an extremely vague term, I realize. But the yeah, I was just going to say because it's one of <laughs> yeah, those. What are you consulting? What do you do? Yeah, in, in, especially a kid right out of college, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, I found a job at a place called Mars and Co, which is actually based in Connecticut. But I moved to New York, and um, it's business or management consulting. So it it was uh, an, an interesting environment. I, I, I quickly realized that that I was not going to be there for the entirety of my career. But it was a very interesting environment to learn in. It, it was it was high stress and high pressure, and working for large Fortune 100 companies, largely or Fortune 500, um, and essentially breaking down numbers, uh, looking at growth um, trends, costs, long-term strategic plans for these companies, and that type of thing. What's the end goal in those situations when they hire people like you? What are they looking for you to? Or what are they looking to get out of you coming on board? Well, really, they hire your bosses, bosses, <laughs> and then you're you're the you're the people doing the grunt work and looking at the databases and stuff like that, and then they present it. But uh, it's kind of a combination, from what I observed, of of half of it was um, when higher ups or CEOs of companies were actually looking for verification of different things that they wanted to initiate, but they were looking for backup. So someone else that, you know, could help support those decisions. And then also sometimes when they just had no idea what to do and they just needed some some guidance and or if they had a ton of data, but they didn't have enough people on their own staff to like really interpret it and, and cr- come up with some conclusions from it. So it's a mix. It's very interesting and very, very challenging intellectually. Um, but but it, you know I quickly realized that I wasn't a, a Fortune 100 company type of a person. Um, it was very valuable learning experiences, but but I just witnessed how every every decision is just singularly based on numbers and money and, and math and whatnot. And um, and uh, 
So, I, but I, I think I think working from what I can gather, and we we had the opportunity to talk on the phone. Um, that that definitely working in Mars in the early days, Mars and Co, not the chocolate bar company, not the it, Red Planet. <laughs> <laughs> it um it had a huge impact for what you've done later in life because you discussed about what you did when you went on one of your earlier jobs when you went out to the vineyards at Jacobs Creek. Yes, certainly learned a lot. Um, very early on, I was staffed at a project in Australia at um, yeah at, at Jacobs Creek, and and it was um, the, something called an activity based costing project, also some other strategy. Um, but what we did was we actually picked apart every single cost that this winery had, including um, you know everything across the board, and then allocated it in ways that, that at the time I, I wouldn't have known how to do. Um, and then made some really interesting uh, observations and recommendations to them. But but looking at everything from the number of times wine was transported between tanks, uh, looking at the overhead and the holding costs, and, and actually coming up with different costs of different SKUs, where they had over 100 different SKUs in their in their product line. And um, learning some of that, those details of accounting and whatnot, and, 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 uh, and, and how those decisions were made certainly has carried forward and, and allowed us to, to use some of those decisions to make smart decisions uh, because essentially sorry, you, information were, you were going in there to, to to deeply deeply analyze from start to finish when the grapes when the seeds were sown and when the wine ended up in the stores and it was sold mm-hmm. that, that process from there and where they could save money everywhere along the lines right everything from the sourcing to the crushing pressing fermentation storage and bottling yeah like that's a that's a great foundation at a young age in one of your early jobs that you get this skill to look at things in such an analytical manner and break it down and make sense of every single aspect because a lot of people in most jobs especially i'm sure when it comes to farming you know i'm someone who is who is blissfully unaware about some of the things i'm farming i managed to listen to some of the past podcasts that you were on um one was with a guy, was it based in Vermont? Um, or the, the sponsor was from Vermont. I can't remember who it is at the moment. But you guys were talking about so many different farming terms, and it was all going over my head. And I, you, we, I could have been the farmer to farmer. Farmer to farmer, yeah, that's yeah. what it was. He's actually based in Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, he is. Yeah. Oh, it is a, oh, it's a Wisconsin podcast. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, to the outside world, I'm sure, for most people, it is that a farmer goes in and, you know, will analyze slightly to some of his crops or her crops. But they're just going in to grow, reap, and then sell it on. Whereas what you've done, as we'll discuss later with Brooklyn Grange, is take such an analytical approach to the produce and the crops and your surroundings and your environment. And I'm sure Mars, working at Mars, you know, gave you that foundation to, to learn that at the beginning. It certainly helped a lot, yes. And, uh, and that is the truth about farming, is that, that there's a lot of sort of inner workings of it, especially because it's such a low-margin industry. Um, asset management, keeping overhead costs down, having super high utilization of your capital expenditures. Like when you buy a new tool, you got to make sure you use it and you got to make sure it really helps you. And constant decisions like that. And, and that's almost the separation between survival and not, especially in today's far, uh, agriculture system with, with where prices are and margins are and whatnot. So, yeah. And just what you said there about new tools and utilizing it and making use of it, that goes on to the next company that you worked for with E-Trade. Because one thing that you mentioned when we spoke that stood out to me was that you said that their mission was to only invest when there was a guaranteed return on investment. Yes. Which so rarely happens. 
you know, that people will really, with a fine tooth, make sure that there's going to be money coming back in it. They'll take a chance, they'll take a risk, or they will just kind of use their subjective opinion and hope that this will be worth it. So mm-hmm. to have those two things where you can break information down and then only ever invest when you're guaranteed an investment, it's pretty good. Yeah, well, it's also it's very conservative, right? Yeah, it's, very, it's very conservative. Cautious. And yeah. my, my partners will probably say, oh, you know, <laughs> we, we all pull at each other in, in certain and appropriate ways, too. But but that's certainly the way I was trained to make decisions at those four or five years of corporate working that I did before I started agriculture. And uh and I can understand why. And it was more financial management that you were doing when you were working with E-Trade? Um, with E-Trade, I, I was working towards account acquisition and, and um, uh, online marketing. So we were actually trying to grow deposits in the online bank and also to sign up brokerage accounts who would then transfer their money, stay with it like a bank, and then also uh, trade stocks. Right. So we were trying to get more people to sign up. Okay. Okay. But yes, very rigorous analytical approach to um, towards account acquisition. Always looking at the return on investment whenever a new marketing campaign was taking place, and really, really interesting ways uh, of tracking those those programs too, with different tags on URLs and pixels on people's cookies and stuff like that. And how long did you spend at E-Trade? Uh, about three years. And after about two, about two years, two and a half years, I, I started really researching and, and working towards making a transition into agriculture. I was always uh, uh, cooking a lot and, and very interested in, in other things beyond the realm of just work. I, you know, I treated work as a place that was a good place to be in a challenging environment, a place to, to, to work as hard as you can. But once I was out, I, I had a lot of different hobbies. I wasn't just going home to watch a movie or something like that. Um, my, my friends used to come over and we would, we would cure olives. We would uh, hang up a pork belly and cure that. We'd make bitters, hot sauce, kimchi, Worcestershire sauce. Was probably, I was probably a little bit caged up. I was just always trying to do different things with cooking projects. And I think definitely people were kind of wondering, well, maybe he's a little bit torn. It seems like he's got like a job or a career that he kind of likes and then also these hobbies that he really likes. And, you know, it's, it's, it can be a little bit of a disconnect too sometimes. So um, after a little bit of time and some urging from some close friends and, and people that really loved me, I realized, oh, yeah, like I, I really am excited about this idea of trying to get into agriculture and becoming a farmer. And when you were looking at that, that you wanted to get into, were you looking upstate or was your mind solely focused on trying to make this work in New York City? Good question. I was actually looking everywhere. I, I had uh, looked at a farm in California. I'd looked at a farm in Long Island, one upstate New York, and, and just kind of uh, observing. I, I guess I, I was assuming that I was going to leave the city and then very attracted to places that were at least coming into a large metropolis to, to do farmer's markets, because I figured that could kind of be like a connection where you can stay a night or come back in or or whatever. Um, so I, I, was, I was definitely assuming that my transition would be rural. But uh, at the same time, there there was some inspiring things happening uh, with urban agriculture. Some some people have been farming for a long time. Uh, other sort of things happening, and then I started looking up at the roofs and realizing that there was a gap in the market up there. Yeah, that there was all these roofs that that had full sun, empty flat spaces, uh, and that they were not being utilized for anything. And um, again, with with a lot of conversations and support with friends, um, started working to pursue that. I understand that at that time, some people had farms on roofs. But was there anything done in such a large scale that you were 
looking to do? Um, yeah, for sure. There was people growing and, and setting up plots all over the, the country in different roofs. But this was uh, it was unique in that it was the first effort towards um, really making a commercial operation, signing a lease, getting a big, huge space. So uh, were a lot of these people that had done it in other places, were they doing it more as a passive kind of manner as opposed to running it as a real business? Uh, I believe so. We'd have to check in with uh, with every single entity, of, of course. Well, that was, yeah. And I wouldn't call it passive. It was still active <laughs> agriculture, farming. But, um, yeah, I, as far as I know, the, the, in terms of signing a lease and, and raising loans and all that kind of a thing and starting a business, that, that was uh, one of its first, the first. Great. Well, before we get into the creation and how Brooklyn Grange started, we're just going to go to a quick, quick break. Okay. issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls, but here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine, and how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cooking machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Welcome back to Why Food. I'm here with Ben Flanner, the founder of Brooklyn Grange. Um, we were just talking about the hot sauce that he makes. I can't eat spicy food, so unfortunately... Irish guy. Irish guy. <laughs> it just doesn't work with me. I, all I can taste is burning. But anyway, back to where we were. So we were talking about your tr- transition out of uh, corporate world, essentially, and then moving into farming and agriculture, because that's what you found, that that's where your passion and interest lay. Before you started with Brooklyn Grange, you set up a farm called Eagle Street Farms in Greenpoint. Yes. And that was, was that a smaller, was that a smaller scale or it was still relatively big, right? Uh, yes, it was, it was also the first of its kind and it, and it was uh, considerably smaller than the first Brooklyn Grange that we set up. Um, it was on 6,000 square feet and um, it was 60 by 100, a, a green roof that, that was in Greenpoint and um, a attracted a, a lot of really positive energy and um it was through that project that that we started to collect the data that we needed to figure out if if and how it could be scaled up um so throughout the course of that summer um i kept track of every crop that we grew and the sales and the yields from those crops threw that into a spreadsheet um in the second half of the year in the fall and um and then we used that in order to drive the the basis for the business plan which we used to raise raise capital and um, also to convince the landlords that we were legit enough to sign a 10-year lease. <laughs> was that a difficult thing to convince people in the early days that you could put a roof, that you could put a farm on their rooftop? Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, people were extremely interested in the idea. Um, however, the tendency in New York, 
as you may know, tends to be to be skeptical or hesitant and risk averse, especially for landlords because they do have a lot to lose. Um, so, so it definitely took some some work, um, but eventually we found the right landlord who really saw our vision, believed in it. He was already planning to install a green roof as well, um, and and we signed that lease really quickly and just kind of jumped into it. And was the first one in Long Island City, or was it in the Navy Yard? Yes, it was Long in Island. Long Island City in 2010. Okay. And that's an acre space, so, so 43,000 square feet. Just to give people um, a run-through understanding as how you get a farm on a roof, how did you guys do it? How did you get the soil up there? <laughs> the basics, get, get the, the, you sign the lease and get the money together in, in parallel. <laughs> um, and then the, the install was uh, primarily done with a crane where we lifted up huge super sacks that weigh a couple thousand pounds of soil and then we emptied them and then distributed it across the roof on top of a drainage system um, and, and then after everything was up then we started organizing to, to set up all the beds and we did that work with uh, with the the two founders here of Roberta's and and a lot of the crew from Roberta's came out in 2010 and helped with that installation well that's great to hear I'm delighted that we're back here and in, uh, mm-hmm. in the the shipping container at the side of Roberta's talking about it yep and when you guys founded Brooklyn Grange what was the what was the idea or the focus? Because you wanted to have a commercial um, farm that was going to be operating in New York City, but did it was that the main focus? Was that the only focus, or did you have more that you wanted to contribute or achieve within that as well? Yeah, there's a lot to it for for sure. There's many facets of setting up a, a, a million pounds of soil on top of a roof. <laughs> um, it's a tremendous opportunity to engage the community and especially children to to uh, create awareness and work in education about how food is grown and where it comes from. Um, you're sort of building a park or a huge green space that you want to have the doors open as much as legally or uh, as, as feasibly possible for people to come up and enjoy it and, and whatnot. Um, and then, of course, there's the economics, trying to create jobs. Um, there's also environmental benefits of green roofs where they absorb stormwater and cool the air around them. Um, the green roofs in general are very good for cities. So there's lots of different things happening. There's a lot of moving pieces, which we kind of stepped into because remember, as I mentioned, that my original passion was was kind of fr- just frankly, simply agriculture, but also some of the other uh, things that were that were small scale agriculture, you know, taking care of the land and taking care of the people, essentially. So it's been a really interesting journey since we've uh, been straddling the lines with with all these different sort of things that come with the farm. Yeah, yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute because uh, talking, we'll talk about the triple bottom line of a business in a few yeah, moments, yeah. but. Just to discuss, because you were talking about how you took da- data from Eagle Street Farms and brought it to Brooklyn Grange. Is it is that a very common practice that 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 the data from the farm from the production is inputted into spreadsheets? Is that commonly done in farms? I think it is more and more. Um, I, I can't speak for every farmer across the country. I know that that if we start at the top with with um, industrial farming. Um, you know, it's all about yields, right? And then the net. And the net is just super small per acre. Like if, if you've seen the movie King Corn, I want to say that the the net per acre of corn was like 40 bucks. And half of the difference between being in the red versus in the black was because of a subsidy or something. So those farmers, they have to be focused on that type of data. But I don't know if they don't have the same complexity, though, because they might be growing one or two crops. They add maybe a handful of different fertilizers, one or two herbicides or something like that. 
But a small scale farmer, market farmer, you're growing 70 different crops. You have tons of complexity. You have a million different things happening at the same time. Um, so it can be quite intimidating. And, and uh, it took years. Like we started immediately we started collecting data and putting things into spreadsheets, but it took several years to really get our spreadsheets honed and to get to that level where we could collect enough data to really draw the right conclusions from them. It's amazing looking back at how far we've come since then. But uh, it's really important to have that information for making decisions. Yeah, I can imagine because you're because you're you're operating within such a small amount of land that a mistake or right. a patch that doesn't yield what you want has a huge impact on, right. on, on down the line. And for people particularly passionate about that, about agriculture, that podcast that you mentioned earlier, the farmer to farmer, uh, he spends about an hour and a half just going deep into different farms operations. And you hear people referencing some of those same analyses and, and whatnot. Yeah. And you, you, um, you, I, on that, you spoke about some vegetables that you realized there are some produce that worked and some didn't work, which were right. some of the ones in the early days that you wanted, that, that you uh, tried to grow that didn't work as best planned. Well, it's funny because uh, I see it over and over with people that come up to our farm as well. Um, there's an, a little bit of an idealism, especially as you start in agriculture, that you want to grow everything and you want to treat everything just as equally. And if it's a particular vegetable that you're fond of, you want to actually treat it better than you treat the others. But you're not necessarily, those aren't going to correlate with the, the economics of your vegetables. So it took a few years of, um, of fun and experimenting to realize that certain crops we just weren't making any money on or we were maybe even losing money on them or they didn't taste that good. And Which were some of those? You know, then the ego gets involved too because you don't want to admit that you're bad at growing something. But it's like <laughs> if I grow 80 crops, I can grow 78 instead and just say like that there's two that, that I'm going to buy from somebody else at the market or something. Uh, but the crops specifically that we've nixed through the years have and tested and, and not had a ton of luck with are, are some of the deep-feeding brassicas like broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, um, and then others that take up a, a ton of space and don't give you a whole lot of yield. So they're better off grown in a field where there's not the same rent and financial constraints like pumpkins and winter squashes and things like that. And what are some of the, what are some of the produce that's done really well? In your um, space? Well, always the, the different mixes of greens, the arugulas, um, different peppers, uh, have, have pretty good economics. Tomatoes are okay. Um, during the seasons turnips radishes you know we still grow uh, 50 different crops and not all of them have the top contribution to the net profit but um it's also well within our mission it's like why do this on a roof if, if we're just going to grow one crop or we still could but it's for us that's part of the mission and part of the reason why we're going to work bringing the kids up and everything and and it, it all adds, adds to an ecosystem yeah and it's and it, you know adding to the ecosystem is is wonderful and it's great but also it's pretty remarkable that you're able to serve some of new york's finest restaurants um i've seen right. gramercy tavern roberta's here is on the list i think the micro some of the microgreens go to the spotted pig am i right on saying that yeah pea shoots um your pea shoots yeah um so it's pretty and there's a huge list when you go onto your website of all the the uh -huh. restaurants that you do serve so you know it is it is great that a farm right. helps the environment and that it's there for the community. Right. But it's also pretty remarkable that you don't have to look in the broad tri-state area, that you can just look over the water, over the bridge, at a rooftop in Queens or in the Navy Yard in Brooklyn, and that's where you're going to get your vegetables from. Because New York is such a... 
is agriculture is so sparse in New York. It's very hard to find it because there's not land for it. Yeah, yeah, right. And land and real estate is really the constraint that makes it a, a constant challenge. One other reason that for the diversity is also um, the fact that the, f- the, the space is used for multiple things. We have, uh, we have an events business, um, which, which is thriving on our space as well, and the children, which I've mentioned offhandedly through a, a nonprofit that, that we partner with called City Growers. Um, but also, if, if you come up for your wedding, um, you'd rather see more than one crop. You want to see this beautiful yeah. diversity and, and all these fun, different sort of engaging things around the farm. But the last thing I wanted to just add to that is is um, so so we have this huge diversity of crops, um, and and we have a complicated supply chain way of selling them, um, but also as we collect the information and we can understand the values of different crops, then that allows you to focus how much effort or how much stress or how much worry you put into different crops. So you know the relative value and also the relative loss if you don't get a perfect yield out of some of them. And that can help immensely with a complicated operation with 10 crew members running around doing different things to have that sort of guidance to be able to, to provide yeah, it it just it seems remarkable because you're there every day and you're 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 constantly uh, tweaking the operations to make sure that you're getting more out of it. I I can imagine that you're just looking at it almost like it's um like it's a mathematical equation. <laughs> yeah, it's, ne- it's never done. There's always <laughs> there's always something fun to keep on going. Yeah, I could, yeah, you you probably just have it all broken out as like you know sh- squares and shapes in your head and how things are going to merge together and where the space is. Yep. Is it something that can be rolled out in cities across the board, uh, the way that you've organized it with Brooklyn Grange? Yeah, there's certainly potential for more of them. It is a, a challenge. We're, we're very transparent about that. And um, the, the, the bottom reason for the challenge all comes down to real estate and the many branches and ramifications of the value of land and the, the expenses of living in the cities and um paying rent on the space and everything that's one of the reasons why you brought in the the second facet of brooklyn grange which is your events team at night exactly a a way to utilize the space to absorb more overhead to to use it at night create more jobs everything everything and during the winter then what happens what happens in the farm during the winter when it's less possible to grow as many crops uh we're, we're still remarkably busy we keep our microgreens going in our in our heated greenhouses um we're we're having walkthroughs for events for weddings and dinners and stuff in the spring um showing the walk you know the walkthroughs we're collecting deposits doing the accounting doing taxes all sorts of stuff so it really doesn't slow down a ton but there, of course there's some sorts of cycles with the outdoor crops and what but we're the- a diversified enough business now because um, we also do green roofing and, and uh, other design and installations off-site. So between all those assets aspects of the business, uh, we, we don't slow down too There's much. many moving parts outside of just produce itself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and just to go back to the, the triple bottom line um, of the business, can you, can you talk to us a, a bit more about that and, and what your vision was when you started the business to um, encapsulate many different aspects beyond profit? Right. Super interesting topic and something that we've put a lot of thought into. And, and my partner and vice president of the company, Anastasia, wrote a book about it, actually, which has a lot of lessons in it about sort of running a mission-driven or triple bottom-line business. We, we very much, we even used that exact term in our original business plan in 2010. Um, so that's been within our mission since the start. But, but what's really been interesting is how it's evolved and how we've, as we've 
survived or grown or, or whatnot, evolved, adapted, um, how we've encountered so much tension, some of it healthy tension, some of it frustrating tension between the, the mission-driven business and the profit-driven business and how it's really not a line that you can draw in the sand and say, oh, this is a mission-driven business versus that's a just a cutthroat, you know, evil profit-driven business because every you, you encounter all these different forks in the road where you you want to just go right through the middle. You don't want to take a fork, you know, and uh, and and it's a it's an interesting set of compromises and adaptations, and and it's actually a really fun and good challenge. But you know, you're trying to do things that you feel proud of that that might reach the community in some way that might just make some sort of an impact that, that you're happy with, be that environment or social or whatnot. Um, but then at the end of the day, you constantly, you can never forget about the f- financial fundamentals of running a business and making sure that there's something left over, keeping up with your bills, creating a stable environment for your employees. So they're not ever wondering about their next paycheck, et cetera. Yeah. I would just to give people a feel as to what it is, a triple bottom line, it's incorporating the community, the environment, and then maintaining profit at the same yeah, time. Yeah, pe- people plan a profit. Yeah, so it's 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 a it's a holistic approach, but yet at the same time, it's it's still following through with the notion of business that you still have to make money at the end of it. But that's not your sole through line in, in operating yeah. every day. And it's a great way to to push yourself. Yeah, yeah, you really grow. Yeah, I can imagine if as you, a person and as a business. To accomplish all that. Yeah. And in t- talking about growth, is there is there more opportunities on the horizon for Brooklyn Grange? Yes, we have uh, we have lots of different sort of things that are on the horizon between internal projects and and things offsite, even in some other different countries that we're discussing, looking at. Um, we've uh, we're also involved in a capital raise right now for a project, a second project in Brooklyn that we are working towards. Are you able to say where that location will be? Um, yeah, it's in Sunset Park, and we are currently raising capital for it. Great. Yeah. So what's the do you do you have a time frame of when you'd like to get a farm up and running there? Uh, the exact time frame is tough to to really pin down because there's a lot of variables at play. But um, certainly hoping to make some progress within the next year. Okay. Yeah, well, that's good to so. know. Mm-hmm. Giving giving urban farms access to more people within the borough. Yep. And if people want to get more um, products of, of what's available, they can find your honey. Am I correct in saying that? And your hot sauce in uh, many different stores throughout the city? Uh, mostly correct. The hot sauce is available for wholesale, but the honey we only sell on-site at premises just because of the quantity that we have. Okay. We do have over 30 beehives around the, the five boroughs, but uh, the, the yields that we get from, from them allow for a couple thousand jars or so, and we sell those just at our farmer's markets and um, on-site. And where are your farmer's markets located? Um, we have a market every Saturday at our Long Island City location. It's also an open day where people can come up and check things out, get their hands dirty. It's a lot of fun. Op- open to the public day all for the for the most of the day. It's on our website, the hours and the date that it starts. And then on Sunday, we go to uh, McGulrick Park in Greenpoint. It's a down-to-earth market, and we have a tent there every week. Great. Yeah. I'd highly recommend that it's a beautiful space. I actually haven't had the opportunity to go to the Navy Yards location yet, but I have been to the one in Long Island City, and it was so wonderful. It was my first Instagram <laughs> picture in New York, I can <laughs> say that. It's a big thing. <laughs> <laughs> I know it sounds so facetious, but it is a pretty big thing. Um, ben, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. It's I'm, been a pleasure to be on. Yeah, it's been great, um, you know, because with this show, it's, it's, it's wonderful to show how broad the food industry is. 
and when you're going to talk to people about farmers and then that's a job within the food industry it's rarely associated with that being located in a city like new york so you're doing incredibly well um i've known from from researching you online that a lot of people give you guys a lot of recognition for what you're doing in the urban farming movement so congratulations to you guys for that thank you and uh super looking forward to seeing what you're going to do at sunset park and into the future thanks Thanks, man. Um, I want to say a huge thank you as well to Heritage Radio for giving Why Food and 33 other shows a platform for conversation and community outside of the mainstream. I also want to say a great thank you to Feeder for producing today's show. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe to the show. That small action has a huge reaction for the show's popularity. Next week, I'm going to be speaking to Donald Skeen, who is a TV chef, personality uh, he joined me on St. Patrick's Day, but unfortunately, due to technical difficulties, uh, that uh, that recording was was kind of put to put to stop. Um, thanks so much. For li- good for you because you get a week off, right? Uh, kind <laughs> of, but I have to do it all over again. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's show. If you ever want to get in touch with me, please email me at whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org or you can connect on Instagram at whyfoodpodcast. Thank you, guys. We'll talk again next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.